John chapter number 3 and verse number 23. While you're finding that text, I want to say uh, that it's good to be back here at Charity Baptist Church. We haven't been here a lot lately other than on some Wednesday nights. The Lord's been good and opened doors for us to preach in different places. Uh, but while we are in different places, we have missed being here, and it's good to be with you this Lord's Day morning. It's good to be in the house of God. I want to pray for Brother Kevin this morning, that the Lord would help him in his sickness. And I know there's some other folks that are out sick and maybe some traveling also. So I want to be mindful to pray for them. Um, the message that's on my heart this morning, I think, would be in order. I think it goes with the, uh, with kind of the, um, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but the direction. Uh, the service has been in thus far this morning. I'm I'm very comfortable um, in a um, in an environment of worship. You know, most people don't know what worship is anymore, um, and I don't claim to be an authority on much of anything uh, except my wickedness. But I do know that man makes a effort to produce what they call worship, but it's not real worship. Uh, and God is seeking those that would worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's what we gather for on the Lord's Day. We don't come here this morning uh, so, that, so that somebody can check our name off of an attendance list uh, or so that we can get the family off of our back or so that we can just meet some obligation, duty, responsibility of the sort. Uh, we come here this morning because... A Savior who did not have to, gave himself for us, loved us, died for us, redeemed us, pulled our feet up out of the miry clay and set our feet on a solid rock and established our goings. And um, we were talking about that a few minutes ago down front here. Where would we be? Do you ever think about that? If you're saved, I mean, you know in your heart of heart that, that you're saved. Do you ever reflect on and think about where would you be had God not saved you? Where would you be apart from the grace of God? There's common grace that we all experience. Everybody uh, enjoys the sunrise in the morning and food on the table and shelter and health and, and all of those things. But the saving grace of God uh, that God reached down with and saved you. Where would you be had that not taken place in your life? I tell you, it's worth getting up and coming to the house of God Amen. on the Lord's day. And as small and insignificant as you may feel that you are, to be in your place and, and give your best effort at worshiping the one who died for you. And that's what we're here for this morning. John chapter number 3, verse number 23, that's where we're going to begin our reading this morning, John chapter 3, verse number 23, and we're going to read through verse number 30 and make some remarks about what we've read. Verse number 23, the Bible says, And John also was baptizing at Enon near to Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that, uh, excuse me, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizest, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's bow our heads and pray, if you would. Our Father, we thank you this morning for the providence and good grace of God in our lives. Lord, we recognize 
that didn't know by ourselves we are unfit, unworthy to even cast a hopeful eye toward heaven. But Lord, because of your mercy, because of your grace, because of the blood of Calvary, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness this morning, knowing that our petitions are heard, knowing that our needs are met. And Lord, we stand here this morning, a needy man before a needy people. Lord, your people are gathered here this morning. They're in need of the preached word of God to be applied to their hearts and to their lives. Lord, they need that in their service to you. And Lord, I stand here this morning as your servant with nothing to offer, nothing to give in and of myself. And Lord, I beg you on their behalf. Lord, I beg you on my behalf. Lord, help us. Lord, give us what we stand in need of. Lord, touch us this morning. Lord, help us see Jesus this morning. Lord, help us fall in love with him in a deeper way than we have before. God, this morning we want to say to you that we love you. We're not able in this flesh, Lord, to love you as we should. Oh, but God, we do love you. We recognize this morning, we recognize where we were before you intervened. Lord, we remember the lostness, the darkness, the helplessness, the hopelessness. And then, Lord, the good grace of God intervened. And you reached out and touched us. Oh, God, we bless your name for that this morning. We thank you. God, help us praise you and worship you as you are worthy of. And, Lord, speak to us through thy word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And it's for his sake. Amen. We've read to you in John chapter 3, verse 23 through verse number 30. And I'm going to depart from my usual method of preaching and just walking through the text verse by verse, which is uh, my preferred method. But we're going to spend our time primarily this morning in one verse. That is the last verse that we read, which was verse number 30. John the Baptist is quoted here as having said, in reference to Christ, he must increase but I must decrease. You read along with me, I'm sure, when we read the text. You understand the setting that we have here. Um, what's taking place is John's disciples have approached their rabbi, John, their teacher, and, and they have a concern. And what they're telling him is this one whom you baptize in Jordan, namely Jesus. Uh, they said, every man is coming unto him. In other words, we're, we're losing our crowd. And John responds to him. He begins to answer him in verse number 20, 27 rather. And he says, uh, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Well, that's a lot right there in that verse. A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. You do understand everything you have this morning came from heaven. Even tangible goods, the shoes on your feet, the shirt on your back, the vehicle that you rode to church in, the health that yours to enjoy to whatever extent you have health. But in a, greater, uh, in, in, a, in a greater view is the grace of God that's at work in your life, the saving grace of God in your life, how that you've been redeemed. A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. He said, I want to remind you of something in verse number 28. He said, ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. John understood his place. He understood his role. Uh, verse number 29, he says, he that hath the bride, he is the bridegroom. 
But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And then he says this, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. And then he, then he caps this commentary, this response that he's given with this definite statement concerning Christ. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's our verse that we want to spend our time on this morning. I'm speaking to you this morning on this thought, less of us, more of him. Less of us, more of him. Now, before we look at that thought, I want to look at the character in our text that we've mentioned most thus far, John, John the Baptist, John the forerunner. I want to mention a few things about him just to uh, give you, if you don't have a good grasp of who John is, he is, as he stated in our text, the forerunner. He is the one who came before Christ. One old preacher said years ago, years ago that John the Baptist was the bulldozer that cleared a pathway for Christ. He is that one that was uh, prophesied of in the Old Testament that there would be the forerunner that would come and make clear the way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, that is John the Baptist. He is that same one that we're told of uh, earlier in the Gospels, his mother, Elizabeth, was a cousin to the Virgin Mary uh, who conceived Christ our Lord. And Mary went and visited uh, while she was with child. She went and visited her cousin Elizabeth who also was with child, who was John the Baptist in the womb. And when Mary approached Elizabeth, that little baby in the womb, and it's not a fetus, it's a baby in that womb, and that little baby, John the Baptist, leaped in his mother's womb when he was first introduced to the presence of Christ. Now, I don't see much leaping and uh, jumping for joy in the presence of God's people anymore, but jo John the Baptist set us a good example. When we come in the presence of the Lord, there ought to be rejoicing, there ought to be worshiping, there ought to be uh, a gladness in the in the. God, among God's people when they enter into the presence of the Lord. That was John the Baptist. And then later on, we catch up with John again in the Gospels as it tells of his life. And it says of John that he was a preacher of repentance. He preached repentance. He preached that you must repent. He said, bring me forth uh, fruit and meat for repentance and then we find John again in the Gospels. We find him at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have often thought about the scene and marveled over how that took place when Jesus begins to uh, begins his earthly ministry, and John the Baptist had the privilege of introducing that to the world. He introduced the world to Jesus Christ and his ministry that uh, John was baptizing. Uh, in the Jordan and he looked and on the mountaintop down comes Jesus and he had the high and holy privilege of being the man who would point and say to a lost, sin-sick and dying world, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world and preachers of righteousness from that day unto this day continue to do the same thing, to point to the Lamb of God and say, behold, he who takes away the sin of the world that was John the Baptist, and then he was the one who he was privileged to baptize Jesus Christ. And then at that very moment in time, all three persons of the Trinity were present at one time God the Son in the water, having been baptized by John the Baptist. And then the Holy Spirit descended in the form of the dove, and then God the Father spake audibly, and they heard him. John the Baptist was the one who was there and who baptized Christ at that momentous event. So, and Jesus Christ, speaking of John the Baptist, said this concerning him. <clears throat> he said, never was there a man born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. <clears throat> so our very Lord had this testimony of John that there's never been one greater than he's the greatest born among women. And yet that great man is the one who makes this statement of humility and says he 
must increase, but I must decrease. Now, having considered John and his person and his importance, his relevance to the gospel story and a person who would have that prominent of a position in the word of God and a, and a man who Jesus would say there's never been a greater born of a woman if he would give testimony that he must decrease as Christ would increase, then I would say it would behoove you and I to say that there needs to be less of us and more of him. Why would he make that kind of statement? Why would such a man who has, uh, who has all of these things taking place in his life, who is that great forerunner who baptized Jesus, introduced the world to Jesus, why would he think that he must decrease? Uh, why would not it be okay just for Christ to increase? And John maintained position. Because John understand, understood the truth that the apostle Paul would later pin down and introduce us to in Colossians 1 and verse 18. Here's what that verse says. It says that in all things he, that being Christ, that in all things he might have the preeminence. That Christ would have the preeminence. That word preeminence means to be first in rank or influence. To be first in rank or influence. That's Jesus' proper position this morning in the life of the child of God to be first in position, to be first in rank or influence. That same word preeminence comes from another word. The root word means this. It means foremost in time, place, or order of importance. That is the position of Christ in our lives. He is to be foremost in time, place, or order of importance. If we have anything that reverses that, that gets ahead of the Lord Jesus, then that becomes an idol and that becomes a strange God in our lives. Now in verse 30, again, he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. I want to look at that verse and a few words in it. <clears throat> for just a minute, it's very simple, but I want to look at it and point a thing or two out to you. He said in verse number 30, he must increase. That second word, the word must, he must increase. That word means necessary or binding. He's saying it is necessary that Christ increase. It is binding it is absolutely essential, it's mandatory, if you will, that Christ increase. It's the same Greek word that was used previous in this chapter when our Lord um, was speaking to a man and he said to him, ye must be born again. It's the same word. So as imperative and as true as it is that the lost sinner, in order to make heaven, must be born again. It is equally imperative, equally true that in the life of the believer that Christ must increase. That word increase means to enlarge. That's a very simple definition, isn't it? So when John says this, he says, he, that being Christ, must. It is imperative, necessary, binding. He must increase. That means he must be enlarged. He must be made bigger in our life. Now listen, I understand that the Lord can't be any bigger than what he is. He is everything. He's, it doesn't get any bigger than him. But in place of importance, in place of rank in our life, he must expand. He must enlarge. He must be bigger. He must be greater. He must be of a grander magnitude than he has ever been before. We are to love the Lord more day by day. We are to yield to him more day by day. We are to be enamored by him more day by day. We are to be infatuated with him more day by day as we look upon him and as we learn of him and experience him more in our life. He should be larger and grander than he has ever been in our life. He must increase. 
But then John, speaking of himself, says in the latter part of the verse, but I must decrease. That's the opposite of increase. It means to lessen in rank or influence. It means to make lower. You see, the thing is, for Christ to increase, for him to be greater and be first in rank or influence, for him to have the preeminence in the life of the child of God, for him to sit upon the throne in the life of the child of God, the child of God must yield. He must give him that place of reverence, high regard, preeminence. We must do that. We are to decrease, to lessen in rank our influence, to make lower. I don't want to get off and chase rabbits this morning. I do want to stay on point, but I want to say that I don't think we've ever seen a day, and I have not seen a day in my saved life that God's people, God's people have been so enamored by themselves, so self-centered, so self-focused. Everything's about ourselves. We are our own primary concern, our own comfort, our own well-being, our own satisfaction. That's not what John said was important. What John said was important was that the Lord Jesus increase and that John decrease. I want to say that there's basically three places. We're going to look at three places this morning where... There needs to be less of us and more of him. Firstly, in our hearts. And then secondly, in our homes. And then lastly, in the house of God. I want to look at them in that order. If you'll look with me, we'll go through them briefly. I say firstly that there should be and there must be less of us, more of him, more of the Lord Jesus in our heart. How does that happen? What does that look like? Well, that happens by firstly having a proper appraisal of oneself. We labored this morning at giving you a good appraisal of John the Baptist, helping us to see him and understand what a great Christian he was. How that even the Lamb of God said that never had a man been born of a woman who was greater than John the Baptist. And then if John the Baptist would make such a statement that his Christ must increase, but John himself must decrease, then it would behoove us that there should be less of us and more of him. Help us, Lord, to gain a proper appraisal of ourselves. Help us to be true, uh, true and honest when we appraise ourselves through the word of God. I'm not talking about turning on your television and listening to what some high-paid uh, uh, talk show host, what some doctor feel or somebody along those lines would tell you about yourself. Do you know what those folk will tell you? They'll tell you that you are wonderful, that you are worthy, uh, that you are great, that you have all of these wonderful things to offer and they will blow you up. But let me tell you what the Bible says about you and about me. It says that our heart is deceitful, that it is wicked above all things. It says that no man can know our heart. The Bible says that none of us are righteous. No, not one. The Bible says of you and I that our righteousness is as filthy rags. In order for us to have a proper proper appraisal of ourselves, we'll have to view this from the light of Scripture And understand when it's said and done that regardless of what anyone else thinks about us, regardless of what kind of accolades have been heaped upon us, that we are wretched, that we are poor, that we are miserable, that we are undone without God. And if there be any good thing about us, if there be any good thing in us, it is that that God has done within us. We are nothing. I know that doesn't build self-esteem, but self-esteem is not what we need. What we need is a Savior. We have to have a proper appraisal of oneself in order uh, for there to be that situation where there's less of us and more of him in our heart. If we don't get the heart right, 
you can forget about getting the home right. If you don't get the home right, you'll never get the church right. And so we must be sure that we have a proper appraisal of ourselves, And that is a low, low appraisal of ourselves. Then I would say that we must have a proper appraisal of our Savior. If we are to have less of us and more of him in our heart, firstly, a proper appraisal of ourself, and then secondly, a proper appraisal of our Savior. Time would fail us this morning to take and, and to labor at giving a proper appraisal of our Savior. But could I say this to you? Take time, search the scriptures, study of him, learn of him. Here's what you're going to find. You're going to find that he is just as the Song of Solomon said, that he is altogether lovely. You're going to find that Pilate was 100% correct and true when he washed his hands and said, I find no fault in this man. You can learn of the Lord Jesus. You can look up one side and down the other. You can scan the front. You can scan the back. And here's what you'll find at the end of the day. After all of your surgings, you'll find that all of your findings indicate that he is altogether lovely. That he is the precious Lamb of God. That he is without fault. That he is without blemish. That he is the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world so that whosoever would place their faith in him could be saved. You'll find that he is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. You'll find he is the one that never leaves you nor forsakes you. You'll find that he is the one that keeps his word. You'll find that he is the yea and the amen. You'll find that he is your very best friend. The Lamb of God, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Child of God, don't you sometimes just love to look upon him? Don't you just love to think of him? I remember when my wife and I were in courtship. I could not get enough of her. She often gets plenty of me now. But I could not get enough. Um, our children, they've come up in a different age than what we grew up in. And we, I cannot help but to pick and poke at them and say, you know, when your mother and I were courting one another, there was no FaceTime. There was no texting. We lived in the same county, but yet it was long distance, and you know what that meant. And so on the occasion, on the weekend, when her mother would allow me to come and pick her up and we could spend some time together, and then the time seemed to go by so fast. Hours could go by so fast. And then it was time to go home. It was time for her to go inside and I couldn't stand to part. And we would talk about, of course, we didn't talk about it publicly, but we'd stand out there in my vehicle and we would talk about how we longed for the day that we could spend all of our time together. When we would be wedded, she would be mine, I would be hers. We could wake together in the morning. We would go to bed together at night. We would spend all of our time with each other. And of course, that's reality now. But you understand that the relationship between Christ and his people, Christ and his church, he chose a wedding or rather a marriage relationship to be the earthly demonstration of that. We as God's people ought to be fixated upon him. Or to want, we ought to want to spend as much time as possible around him as we possibly can. Any of you folks that are like me that grew up before this revolution of FaceTime and that sort of thing, where you couldn't talk to each other all the time, I wonder, were me and Miss Shanna the only one that done this? She would write me letters, and I would read those letters over and over and over. I had a shoebox in my closet that had all of those letters. And when she was really feeling nice and generous to me, she would take some of the perfume that she wore and some way she would apply it to that letter. 
And I would just smell that letter and close my eyes and think of my precious bride-to-be. Hallelujah. Do you think about the Lord Jesus like that? Do you ever just sit and think about his glories, how wonderful he is, how precious he's been to you, what all that he has done for you, what all that he has afforded you? Do you ever sit around and just think about the day that will come when you can be with him for eternity? I tell you, beloved, there has to be a proper appraisal in our life, in our heart, of our Savior. If we are to have less of us and more of him, then in our heart we have to have a proper appraisal of ourselves and a proper appraisal of our Savior. The second thing that I want to mention to you, the second place that we need less of us and more of him is in our home. In our homes, Christian homes, we see them falling apart, falling by the wayside. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons for that is is because Christ is no longer in the place of preeminence in our homes. Christ, we should have a proper appreciation in our home of our spouse. Two things I'm going to mention to you in our home. First, a proper appreciation of our spouse. You said, preacher, I thought we were talking about Jesus. I thought you were talking about more of us and less of him. I am. I am. But could I say this to you this morning? If you don't love your wife like you should, if you don't treat your wife like you should, I don't care anything about hearing you talk about the Lord. I don't care anything about hearing you shout. Listen, you're to love her as Christ loved the church. That's how you're supposed to love her. And I believe central, central to having Christ and his place of preeminence in our home is for us to have a proper appreciation of our spouse. And that's a two-way street for husbands and wives. A proper appreciation for our spouse. He is the one. She is the one that God gave to you. Out of all the billions of people on planet earth, God orchestrated your pathway and allowed you to cross paths with that person. And God allowed that person into your life and allowed them to become your spouse. And you made a commitment to God that you would be devoted to that person in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, until death do you part. And if we can't be faithful in that endeavor, how will we ever be faithful in the endeavor to serve our Lord who we cannot see? God, help us in our homes, firstly, in our efforts to be less of us and more of him in our home to gain a proper appreciation for our spouse. I see I'm not scoring a lot of points with that. I will hasten along to my next point. There should secondly be a powerful appetite for our Savior in our homes. If our homes are going to be right, if there's going to be less of us, more of him in our home, firstly, there must be a proper appreciation of our spouse, and secondly, a powerful appetite for our Savior. There's powerful appetites on display in Christian homes nowadays, but it's not an appetite for our Savior. It's an appetite for the things of this world. It's an appetite for carnal pleasures, sensual pleasures. There doesn't seem to be an appetite in the homes of God's people for our Savior, but there should be. There should be a powerful appetite. I believe you could turn to the Old Testament and look and see where it told us that we ought to make common mention of the Lord, we ought to talk about the things of God in our house. Listen, if our children... If our children only see us serve God, only see us act like we love God, only hear us make mention of God and the Lord Jesus Christ on the Lord's day, do you know what that tells our children? It tells tells them that we're a counterfeit, that we're a fake, that we're a fraud, that we're a hypocrite. Does it not? My children need to see me love Jesus at home. I can fool you. I don't have to be around you very often. I can, I can put on my best face, smile as soon as I get out of the vehicle, speak some spiritual lingo, 
and I can fool you, but my wife and children live around me day by day, and they see what you're made of when the pressures of life are really on. They see what you're made of. And you've probably never met a Christian man who has failed more than I have. You don't know me very well yet, but I'll tell you some things I can get so stressed out. I can get so flustered, so aggravated over seemingly small things sometimes. And I have this ability to open my mouth and just let things come out. And I'll say things that I wished I had not have said. You ever do that? The rest of y'all made out of the same material I'm made out of? I'm so human, I kicked my wife's cat yesterday. I sure did. But I want to tell you something. Here's the difference, beloved. Daddy, mama, here's the difference. If you want your children to see genuineness, and authenticity about you and your love for the Lord Jesus and in your efforts to have less of you and more of him in your home. When you do fall flat of your face and you will, you have and you will again. And as the brother said this morning, that doesn't mean we should say, well, you know, we can't do any better, so let's don't try. No, strive. Strive to live a holy, consecrated, separated, godly life before your family. But understand this. If you're going to have less of you and more of the Lord Jesus in your home, when you do fall flat on your face, you drop the ball and you sin and they see it, here's what you do. You say, children, you say, spouse, I failed. I was a poor example of what a Christian is supposed to be and I'm sorry and I want you to forgive me. I ask you to forgive me. I'll tell you what that does. That counsels out the lie that the devil will whisper in their ear and say, see, daddy's a counterfeit. See, mother's not genuine. That's what we need in our homes. Less of us, more of him, and that will only happen by a proper appreciation of our spouse and a powerful appetite for our Savior. And then the last thing that I want to talk about to you We're talking about seeing less of us, more of him. We mentioned firstly in our hearts, secondly in in our homes, and then finally in the house of God. Oh, in our day, how desperately, how desperately do we need to see less of us and more of him? You're so blessed You're so blessed here as a member of this church to have what you have. But understand that everybody doesn't have what you have in a church. Understand that sadly, and and I'm not wanting to get off in the ditch and badmouth other people or churches. I do want to be honest with you. This thing of church has turned into a dog and pony show. It's turned... Into, into such a carnal display. It's sensual. It's shallow. It's pathetic. In many, many instances. In many churches, you can go to church and uh, they'll, they'll spend 45 minutes or an hour with a, with a praise band and then a... I got to remember I'm not your pastor. I don't need to talk about all the things that I... Oppose, but you'll see. You'll see. The pastor comes to the podium or little glass thingy, and you know he's trying to connect with the young people, and he has on faded out britches and maybe holes in them, and his hair is fixed like the young people. His shirt's not tucked in, um, and he says very little from the word of God, almost nothing. And he tells the people that you are good, that God loves you, and God has a great plan for you. And, and you've got, you, know, you have all these wonderful things in life, and, and you are so wonderful, and, and you just need this one little cherry on top, which is Jesus. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
Do you know that churches nowadays, oftentimes with a new church starting in an area, that they will do surveys, they will do polls, and ask people, what do you want in a church? What do you want? And whatever the people want is what they provide. Whatever the people want is what they provide. But can I tell you what church needs? Church needs what church used to have. Church needs more of the word of God. Church needs more Holy Ghost filled preachers who have spent more time with him than they have with them, who has spent time in the book and has got a word from God and has a heart as big as the state of Texas for his people and has a backbone like a saw log and will go to the pulpit and preach directly from that book what thus saith the Lord, knowing full well that it's going to fly right in the face of how some folk who sit in the pew are living their life, but yet he does that not to embarrass or to shame, but he does that because he loves them. He does that because he cares for them. He does that because he'll answer for the watch care of their soul one day. And you realize that you have that. You say, preacher, how do you know that? You've only visited here for a while. Brother Kevin was my pastor for several years, several years. And I know that that's what you have in him. And you have something great and you have something special here. And do not take that for granted. And I'll say what I want to say about this point in just a moment. What I'm about to say is not to indicate that that is the case here. But do you realize how quickly a good church can go bad? Do you realize how quickly a good church can go bad? And so I want to say a couple of things to you under this heading. Now we're talking about having less of us and more of him in the house of God. I want to say firstly that we need a prompt abandonment of our sinfulness in the house of God. A prompt abandonment of our sinfulness in the house of God. On an individual level first, there's something wrong with us as a Christian when we have, uh, when we have continuing sin in our life We do not confess that sin, but rather we conceal that sin and we go on to the house of God and we pretend that everything's okay. We smile, we shake hands, we sing, we do all of these things. And listen, you can only hide that for so long, but we'll go on and we'll play the role. You say, what should we do, preacher? Just stay at home and not be a hypocrite? No, but what you should do is confess your sin. You should get right with the Lord. What if everybody in your church hid their sin like you hide your sin? What if everybody in your church allowed their pet precious sin in their life like you do? Better yet, what if your pastor, what if your pastor allowed continuing unrepented of sin in his life and still yet he came to this pulpit and opened the Bible and made an attempt to preach to you. Do you not expect more than that of him? I would. And how? Answer me, how? Can you, how can I expect more than that of a preacher? And we don't even expect that much of ourselves. There must be a prompt abandonment of our sinfulness. You talk about a service. This church, any church, if every member of that church on Lord's Day morning were somehow to get in a prayer closet and say, oh God, I am wretched. Woe is me. God, forgive me for my sin. Lord, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with that. And Lord, there's no need for me to conceal anything. You know that I'm struggling with it. You know my flesh has an appetite for it. But God, I don't want that. This new creature, this new man, Lord, I don't want it. And I need help. God, help me. Help me, Lord. If we do that and mean that, 
and come to the house of God. You think that sister had a spell a while ago, you'd probably clear three pews if you'd get to that place in your life. You see, there must be this prompt abandonment of our sinfulness on an individual basis because what we do when we bring our sin into the church, and I'm not talking about openly flaunting, I'm talking about secret sin right now. When we have our secret sin and we come into the house of God that way, oftentimes that leads to a quenching of the Spirit of God. That word quenching means to smother out. It's to take a wet blanket and throw it on a fire. To smother out. Sometimes a pastor will go to the pulpit and he's studied and he's prayed and he's prayed and he's studied and he preaches and there seems to be a coldness and a callousness over the service and oftentimes I'm convinced that is because of the abundance of sin in the service. We owe it to our Lord firstly. We owe it to our family, but we owe it to this church to clean our sin up. When we come before our God on the Lord's day in an attempt to worship him in spirit and truth, there has to be a prompt abandonment of our sinfulness on a personal level. But then sometimes there's sin in the church, open sin. The church itself operates in a sinful manner. I've seen that I'm not going to air it out, things that that I know, but I, I could tell you things right now that would floor you. I could tell you some things that you might find difficult to believe of things that are going on in churches. I'm not talking about in New York City or over in California. I'm talking about in this county. Things that are going on that would make a sailor blush and it's open and, con- and condoned. And I want to tell you something. It is still possible for God to write Inkabod over the door of a church. That is still possible for God to do that over churches that were once great churches. There has to be a prompt abandonment of our sinfulness. And then lastly, in an effort to see less of us and more of him at the house of God, there has to be a perfect aim in our services. A perfect aim in our services. What is to be our aim? What do we aim at? If you aim at nothing, you will hit it every time. We have to have an aim for our services. What is that aim to be? It is to be the glory and honor of God. It is to see Christ exalted. It is to see him magnified and lifted up every service that takes place in the house of God. Whether the message is a salvation message or a message upon sin, if it's a message of exaltation, if it's a message of reproof or rebuke, the, the, the aim of every service at the house of God and the aim of the ministry of a local church is to see the Lord Jesus magnified and glorified and see him exalted into the place of preeminence that he's supposed to have in the life and ministry of that local church. That's to be the aim of our service. Whatever we do as a church body, if the end goal of that effort is not to see the Lord Jesus glorified, to see him honored to see him lifted up, then it is a faulty effort. It is a flawed effort. And ultimately it will be a failed effort. The aim of our services must be, must be to see the Lord Jesus magnified and glorified. We need less of us. I need less of me in my heart. Don't you? My heart left to itself, it focuses on Brother Ronnie. What makes Brother Ronnie happy? What contents Brother Ronnie? I need less of that. I need to be abased in my heart. I need to be denied in my heart. I need the Lord Jesus to be exalted. I need him to have the preeminence in my heart. Don't you? Don't you? In your home, who rules? Who sets on high? Who 
Is in the position of preeminence in your home. Is it daddy? Some of us men sometimes want to beat our chest like a gorilla and say, I, this is my home. I run this home. No, sir. That's God's home. That wife God give you, she's still his. Those children God blessed you with, they're his. That's God's home. Who sits in the place of preeminence? Is it mama? Well, that's completely out of biblical order. I often see sometimes now neither mom nor dad sit on the place of preeminence, but yet God is not sitting there either, but the children are. Everything is about the children. But I want to tell you something, beloved. That's the tail wagging the dog. Your children shouldn't choose where you go to church. Your children shouldn't dictate around the home. Your children should be honoring you and respecting you. Their position is not the place of, they're not to be in the place of preeminence in your home. It is God. So I'm saying to you that daddy needs to humble himself and understand to whom much is given, much is required. Daddy, God has given you a bride. Daddy, God has given you children and those are great and wonderful gifts and there's much responsibility that comes with that. And daddy, God help you and God help this preacher to humble ourselves and not think anything of ourselves but to admit that we are in over our head, that we are wholly inadequate to be the kind of husband we're supposed to be, that we are totally unable in and of ourselves to raise a child for the honor and glory of God and help us fall on our face and declare ourselves to be unfit and unworthy and beg the mercy of grace and God in the matter and let God have the place of preeminence in our home. God, help us there. And then in the house of God, help us, Lord. Help us never get to the place as a people here at Charity Baptist Church to where we think we would somehow have a monopoly on God. That the goodness of God and the blessings of God that we enjoy here, that somehow we have a lifetime contract on that. God, help us. Help us every day of the week, but especially as we ready ourselves for Lord's Day. Saturday. God, help us to be the kind of people the day before the Lord's Day that we're praying for our preacher. Oh, God, Touch Brother Kevin. God, speak to his heart. Lord, you know I'm trying to raise this family for your honor and your glory, and I've already confessed to you that I'm inadequate and unable to do it in and of myself. And Lord, you gave me that preacher. Lord, you gave me that church. Lord, speak to his heart. Lord, give him the text that we need. Strengthen him, help him. Lord, help us be a blessing to him in his life in any way that we can to where that he can better feed us, the flock of God that God has put him over. Lord, help our service tomorrow. Help my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I don't know what all of them are dealing with, but God, I pray you'd help them. Lord, help us as a church family to come together in the morning without the stink and stench of sin on our life. But God, help us to wear the perfume of the prayer closet on us. Help it to be noted that when we gather together that we are a people of prayer. We are a people that have met with God and talked with God and confessed our helplessness and our hopelessness before him individual and as a family, but then as a church. There's no telling. There's no telling what God could do for us here if we had approached every single service that way. God, we need you. You know what would be the greatest blessing in our life right now? If we could see in reality how needy we are. I personally believe that we live in the day that, uh, that is represented by that Laodicean church in Revelation chapter number three. And do you remember what they said of themselves? They said, we are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. But do you remember what the Lord said of them? He said, you don't even know that you're poor, wretched, blind, naked, miserable. Oh, beloved, don't you understand? 
that without the good grace of God in our life, our next breath is not coming. Our next heartbeat does not take place. We are so needy. We are so dependent upon him. We must have him, but yet we come to a place to where in our own lives as an individual and in our homes and even down at the house of God, we get this pompous notion of self-sufficiency that we can handle things. We cannot. And I want to say to you that this preacher in his life needs so much less of himself. I need so little of me in my life that I'm indistinguishable. My home needs so much less of Ronnie Owen and so much more of Jesus in it. My wife and I need to get up earlier and pray together. We need to pray with and over our children. Do you understand with me, Mama and Daddy, do you understand that hell has an accelerated effort in an attempt to take your children if they're not saved yet to destroy their soul, if they are saved to destroy their testimonies? It's real. And as a church, God help us. What a, I'm not even a member here yet. I think we're going to join one of these days if I can ever be here on a Sunday and the preacher's here too. <laughs> but do we understand what a special place we have here? Do we understand what God has blessed us with here? What a sweet fellowship. What a sweet spirit. A dependency upon the word of God. You need that. Whether you know that or not, you need that. But we're not guaranteed for that to continue. If it is to continue, it'll be because you as members of this church, those of you that are leaders here in this church, it'll be because of a recognition that we need less of us in this church. And we need more of him. We come here for him to hear of him, to learn of him, to love him more, to exalt him, to magnify him, to make him known to a lost and dying world. God help us. I think it could be said that in every area of our life, what we need is less of us and more of him. Don't you want that? You know what would do us well today? Mamas and daddies, children alike, it would do us well to take the white flag of surrender and say, Lord, I surrender. I surrender my heart to you. I'm tired of ruling and reigning. I'm making a mess of everything. In our home, to wave the white flag of surrender, Daddy would do us good to gather our family around and say, Daddy's not running this thing anymore. Jesus is. We're going we're gonna to run this home by the book. We're going to we're going to conduct our home by the tenets of the word of God. Jesus is going to reign supreme. Jesus will have the preeminence in our home. Family, we, we finna be praying together. Family, instead of us each going to our room and eating supper in our rooms and playing on our phones and video games, we're going to gather around this table and we're going to talk to each other. I'm going to get to know you children and children, you're going to get to know your daddy and we're going to get to know Jesus together. And then as a church family, to wave that white flag and say, God, you've blessed us with a good thing. We've got a good church. We've got a great church. But woe is me, Lord, if I allow anything into my heart, into my life, into my home, and drag that on down to the house of God with me and be a hindrance to the house of God that I'm a part of. Isn't that what you want? Well, if it is, could I ask you a question? Is there a better time to make that commitment than right now? Is there ever going to be a better time? No, now's the time. That's why God sent you the message this morning. That's why he spoke to your heart while I've been talking to you.
Why don't you do that? Why don't you come and turn it over to Jesus? Let him reign supreme. Let him have the preeminence. Let him be increased and let you be decreased. Let's all stand to our feet if you would for song leader and pianist to come.